Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Our first scripture this morning is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It's on page 8 in your pew Bible. The Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The next scripture is Matthew 16, 13 through 28. It's on page 671. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But uh, But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward everyone according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. that we're not in the park together, but we're going to make the best of it all together. Um, Normally over the summer, we haven't been meeting for Kids Park, but when we meet in the park, we do do that. So we're going to do Kids Park this morning too. But before we do that, kids, we have a story for you this morning. We're talking about the church this morning. And I think it's a good question to ask, what is the church? 
Because sometimes when we say the word church, we mean the building right here. When you say, I'm going to church, you usually mean that you're going to a certain building like this one that we're in right now. But sometimes when we use the word church, we mean a group of people like this group of people right here. Because when we have our services up in the park, that's church too. You are the church together. But sometimes when we use the word church, we mean something much, much bigger than that. Because the church is also the family of God across all times and places called to bless all the families of the world. And that means that if you believe in Jesus, you're part of the same church as people who live in France and Brazil and Japan and Afghanistan and Sierra Leone and every other part of the world. And it also means that if you believe in Jesus, you are part of the same church as people who lived a long time ago, like Abraham and Moses and Deborah and David and Esther and Nehemiah. Speaking of Abraham, this family of God started way back with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. At the beginning of the chapter, it says, and these are verses that Miss Tiffany just read too, it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your relatives, and your father's family, and I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I will place a curse on those who harm you. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. This is the start of God's family, which became known as Israel. And you've probably heard stories about other people in God's family. Some of our VBS kids from this week were part of tribes that were named after people in God's family, like Judah and Levi and Issachar. Those people and plenty more helped God's family bless the world and keep God's rescue plan going, but they didn't do it perfectly. In fact, they messed up a lot, and so did the rest of God's family. But even still, God kept his promises to his people, and eventually our rescuer Jesus showed up on the scene. And after Jesus came to earth and lived, and died, and rose again, and went back to heaven, God's family got even bigger than just this group of people called Israel. God's family is now everyone who believes in Jesus. Jesus himself told us in Matthew 16, again, verses that Miss Tiffany just read, that the foundation of his church, the thing that holds us all together, is believing that he is the Messiah, that he is Lord. And everyone who believes that has been given the mission to go in the world and tell everybody about Jesus, baptizing them and teaching them to obey his commands, all with the help of the Holy Spirit. His church is supposed to worship together, give generously to those in need, spend time together laughing and eating and enjoying life, praying, helping each other and those around them in need. We're supposed to be a family that blesses all the other families. because That's what the church is. The family of God across all times and places called to bless all the families of the world. And that's what Pastor Corey is going to be talking about this morning. Now, kids, even though you're not going to be in here, you can talk to your parents later about what Pastor Corey tells us in here. But for now, if you are in preschool up through fifth grade, you are dismissed to go up to Kids Park. I'm pretty much just going to tell them what you told them. So, <laughs> wow, so good to see everybody today. Welcome to Church in the Park. Uh, I guess the only thing we're missing is the park and uh, maybe the rain. I was kind of disappointed at first. Uh, maybe some of you were too because I love doing church in the park. 
But then I realized, you know, we really need the rain. And so I'm okay. I'm okay sacrificing a little park time to, uh, to get some rain. And maybe it'll put some wildfires out and all of that too. So glad you're here. Glad we have a roof over our heads. Glad we get to talk about the church. At the end of the worship service, every Sunday, I say, worship service is over. Let's go be the church. And one of the reasons that I do that is because we have to understand that this is not the church. I mean, it is the church. This is the church gathered together. But this is not really the church. This is not the whole of what the church is. The church actually is the people of God. Like, uh, like Pastor Abby said, the family of God called to bless all of the families of the world. And that's what the church really is. Now, I grew up, how many of you grew up in church? All right. Okay, I grew up in church. It was a church that was kind of like this. Actually, the sanctuary looked very much like this. It was in a small town. And uh, man, I remember it really well. I had a great experience growing up in the church. How many of you would say that your experience growing up in the church was a great experience? Yeah, that was was it for me too. I mean, I remember uh, just knowing my Sunday school teachers all the time that I was growing up. They had a huge impact on my life. I remember friends. I remember people coming over for coffee and dessert on Saturday nights. I remember people that I liked a lot and people that I didn't like that much that were really hard to get along with. But yet we stuck together because this is what you do with family and my church very much felt like a family. Now, we weren't very effective at sharing Jesus with the world and so that was kind of a downside to it. We tended to be a little bit insular, I think, as a church. But as far as church family goes, that was very much my experience growing up. But I also know that there are some people, and maybe some of you, who haven't had such great experiences in church. We hear stories of people being rejected by the church or abused by church leadership. Uh, We have churches that operate sometimes more like businesses than they are like families, and churches that are so intent on crafting a brand in order to reach people outside that they forget about people on the inside. And and our church in particular, Waite Park Church, probably has some elements of both. There are things that we do really well, and there are things that we don't do very well. There are times when we care for our people very well, and there are times when people slip through the cracks, and we fail, and people end up being hurt. And in churches, you know, we're not unique, I guess, in that respect, but in churches, failure, the failure to be what we're called to be happened for a number of different reasons. One of them is that we have a distorted view of what the church is supposed to be. Uh, For instance, our consumer society oftentimes spills over into the church and people view the church as the purveyor of goods and services. And so as long as it's still working for me, then I'll stick around. But when it's not, then I'll move to another place that works better for me. But sometimes we fail because even though we do know what the church is supposed to be, The church is actually made up of flawed human beings, and that sometimes makes any organization, even the church, a very messy place to be because we don't even live up to our own ideals. And so as we're getting to the end, or toward the end, of our Summer Foundations of Faith series, I thought one of the things that I think that we need to get straight is just this question of what is the church? What is the church created to be? What's our purpose in the world. And <clears throat> my goal for today is not to give you some abstract theology just for you to think about, 
but it's another way for us to be, to remind us of how we're supposed to operate in the world as a group, but also as individuals within a given church. And so we want to learn a little bit about our calling as a church so that we can do better. And I think we can do better. Now, what I want to do is I want to start at the beginning. And you might think that the beginning of the church, we would go to the New Testament because that's where we first start hearing the word, the church. But actually, the church starts long before that, as Pastor Abby said. In fact, in order to understand the church, we have to go back to the Old Testament, uh, all the way back to the very beginning where we see the seeds of the church planted in Scripture. The creation story in Genesis tells us that human beings are made in the image of God. This means, of course, that all humans have incalculable worth, not because of our usefulness to society, not because of our talent or our good looks or anything like that, but simply because we are human. Being human is a sacred thing. The second part of that, though, is that... Uh, that we are made in the image of God in order to fulfill what theologians call our creation mandate, to fill the earth and to subdue it, which means to bring order to the world, to unlock flourishing for all of creation, especially for humans. In other words, God has put human beings in charge of creation, and we are called to do it through his wisdom. Now, we know the rest of the story of creation. Adam and Eve, even though they knew what they were supposed to be doing, decided that they would rather do it their own way. And so they rejected God's wisdom, and sin entered the world and messed everything up. And now human beings create suffering for each other. But of course, God was not about to give up. Over the next few chapters in Scripture, we start to see the results of sin in the world. We see Cain, uh, Cain killing Abel. We see uh, lots of other kind of murder and violence happening all the way up until the flood where God saves Noah and company. But, of course, God didn't give up at that point either. We get to chapter 12, and God actually devises a plan to redeem the world. He reaches out to a man named Abram. Mostly, he's known better as Abraham. And at this point, Abraham has no idea who this God is. Most likely, he worshipped the tribal and territorial gods of his father and his ancestors. And so it was pretty unusual for a God to actually come to a person and say, Hey, I have a job for you to do. But that's exactly what God did. And here's how it went down. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, I won't go into all of the details of everything that was going on, but there are two things that I want you to see in this story. The first thing is, is that God chose Abraham. He chose one person out of all the people in the world. In fact, he didn't just choose Abraham. By default, he chose his whole family. And we know them, of course, as the Israelites, God's chosen people. And God will say over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, I didn't choose you because you're anything great. I didn't choose you because you were the most numerous. I didn't choose you because you were the most obedient. I chose you strictly because of my grace. Now, 
this is where I think a lot of people have a problem because a lot of people don't like the idea that God would choose one person or one group over another person or group. But the fact of the matter is, according to Scripture, that's exactly what happened. The people of Israel were God's chosen people. Now, many times the reason we have a problem with this is because we misunderstand why Israel was chosen. And that brings us to the second thing that I want you to see in the story, and it's this. is that God did not choose the Israelites so that they would be saved and everyone else would be damned. Just like he did with Adam and Eve, God chose Israel to be the carriers of the blessing to the rest of the world, to all of the families in the world. And that's why we see two blessings during this time. God told Abram that he would be blessed, first of all. But ultimately, God's purpose was to bless all of the families of the world. And that's the actual language. I use that language intentionally because that's actually the language there. It's, it's the word for ethnicity, all of the people groups of the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be blessed. So even though he chose one group, the purpose of choosing that group was to bless all of the groups of the world. And one way were to, that they were to bless the nations was to model what it means to be human, just like Adam and Eve, to live the way God called them to live according to God's wisdom. And that's why God gave them the law of Moses in the Old Testament. In fact, when God gives them the law, he says this, he says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom, and keep this, uh, keep this in your mind here, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, Israel's job was to be priests to the rest of the world. And what does a priest do? A priest mediates between God and humanity, to represent humans to God, to represent God to humanity. They made sacrifices on behalf of the people, and they prayed to God on behalf of the people. Now, if you read the Old Testament, then you'll find that Israel failed at this. In fact, they failed miserably. They didn't obey. They didn't represent God to the nations. Instead, they became like them, and they started to worship the gods of the other nations. And just like Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, Israel was taken out of the Promised Land into exile in Babylon. In other words, their light, the blessing, for a time at least, was extinguished. And that's where it stayed, in darkness for hundreds of years. But God did not leave them without hope. Through the prophets, even though the prophets came and had some pretty stern warnings for them, had some pretty harsh words to say against them, the prophets never left them without hope. And in fact, they promised that someday there would be a true and perfect Israelite, the king, who would come and restore God's people to restore the light, to be the blessing to the families of the world. Now we see that king arrive in passages like Mark chapter 1 verse 14, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And Jesus spent the first part of his ministry preaching about the kingdom of God, healing people, casting out demons. And he did all of this to convince people that he was indeed the king that they had been looking for that would restore Israel to be the people of the blessing. And ultimately, actually, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham 
all of those years ago. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he showed us how to live according to God's wisdom. He died for our sins, but rose again to vindicate his message and to bring victory over sin and death and hell. Now, you also have to understand that Jesus was not a loner. He chose 12 disciples who would learn from him to absorb his teaching, to imitate his way of life. And he did this because when his ministry was done, the community that he founded would actually take on the task of Israel to be a blessing to all of the world. He was calling out his followers, both Jews and Gentiles, into one, what we call ecclesia, that was called to carry God's blessing to the world. The church then isn't the replacement of Israel, but it is the expansion of the people of God into a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-people, uh, people of God without national or political borders. That's what the church is. And here's how it happened. At one point during his ministry, Jesus took his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is uh, one of the passages that Tiffany read earlier. And Caesarea Philippi was a significant city in those days. Caesar Augustus actually uh, gave uh, the city as a gift to Herod the Great. Uh, before it was Caesarea Philippi, uh, its name was Panaeus, after the Greek god Pan. But when Herod received the city, and by the way, how would that be to, uh, to get the gift of a city? Right? My wife and I, in a couple of years, are going to have our 30th wedding anniversary. And, you know, every year they have, you know, this one is the paper anniversary and this one is the precious stone anniversary. Like, I'm hoping, like, the 30th is, like, the city anniversary, you know, so I could get, I could get a city. That would be a great gift, right? Anyway, so Herod named the city after Caesar, Caesarea, and his son Philip to distinguish it from another Caesarea, which was actually over on the Mediterranean coast. Now, Caesarea Philippi in those days was famous for a couple of different things. It was a pagan religious center, but it was also a, a political hub. It was kind of like Rome away from Rome. Centuries earlier, the city was a center for the worship of the god Baal. And in Jesus' day, there were temples to go other gods all around the city. But the greatest building in the whole city was the uh, was the marble temple that was built to Caesar that sat up on top of a, of a huge hill, the highest hill in the region. And they said, you know, writers would say that it would, the sun would glisten off the marble. It was so pure and so reflective and you could see it from miles away. But in Jesus' day, it was more than just a religious center. It was actually a political center. Like I said, Rome away from Rome. Now remember, Jesus didn't do anything by accident. We learned that last week. And so when he took his disciples there, I actually can see him. The Bible doesn't say this, so this is a little extrapolation on my part. But I can actually see him sitting outside the city where the temple to Caesar on the hill was in the background. And it would have been kind of like me taking you to Washington, D.C. and teaching you from the Washington Monument or the White House or something like that. Because what Jesus was doing was he was associating what he was doing with what happened in Caesarea Philippi. While they were sitting there, he had this conversation with Peter and the rest of the 12 disciples. And he asked them, who people say he is. What's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? And of course, his disciples answered, well, some people say Elijah, some say one of the other prophets. But Jesus was actually really more interested in their 
answer. And so he turned the attention to them and he said, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter, as he often did, spoke up first. He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Let me translate that for you. You are the king who the prophet said was going to come and restore Israel to be the people of God. And Jesus said, Peter, you got it. You're absolutely right. And on this rock, this confession that Jesus is Lord, I will build my church and even the very power of hell itself will not be able to defeat it. All right, now let me stop there for just a minute and give you a little chance to reflect on this. Does that sound like how you think about the church today? When you come to the sanctuary on Sunday morning, is that the kind of thing that you think that you're gathering to come and do, to be a part of a group of people who are called out and even the gates of hell itself cannot prevail against it? You don't have to answer that right now. Just a rhetorical question, I guess. Now, the word that Jesus uses there is the word ekklesia. I mentioned it earlier. It's literally translated as called out ones, okay? Just like Abraham was called out, just like Adam and Eve were called out, the church is also called out. And when Jesus used it, it was actually a political word that meant a body of people who were called together because there was a task that needed to be accomplished in the city, and it wasn't just a gather, gathering of random people just to come and get to know each other for potlucks and things like that. Okay? They were called out of their homes. They were called out of the general population for a purpose. Now, Jesus continued on. And he said, now, Peter, I want you to remember this confession. I want you to remember what you said because what I'm about to do is going to go against pretty much everything that you think a king is supposed to do. Instead of marching into Jerusalem or riding a horse into Jerusalem and killing my enemies, I'm actually going to give myself up and I'm going to die for them. And the strange thing is, is this is how I'm going to win. That's how I'm going to establish my kingdom. And that's exactly what happened. We call it Palm Sunday. Jesus rose in, rode, into, rode a donkey into Jerusalem and the crowds of people were shouting Hosanna, proclaiming him to be the king. Now, of course, the Jewish religious authorities and the Romans had other ideas. They accused him of insurrection, both against God and against the Roman Empire, and they tried him and they crucified him. And just like that, the disciples' hopes were crushed. But then on the third day, something really strange happened. Some of Jesus' followers went to the tomb and found it empty. Now, they initially thought that someone had stolen the body, but then Jesus showed up and he was alive. He had been resurrected and he began to show up in various other places among his followers. And for the next 40 days, he continued to teach them before one day he gathered them together. And he said a couple of things to them. The first thing he said, we find this in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So there was the purpose that Jesus was calling his ecclesia together to do. 
We see something similar in Acts chapter 1. The gospel writer Luke says that at one point while Jesus was still on earth, they remembered a conversation that they had had with him. And and here's what Jesus says here, or what, what Luke writes. He says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, talking about Jesus, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait eagerly, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All right, now keep that in mind, because it's going to come up again in just a minute, Okay. And and, and so what happened then was they came and they gathered around him and they asked him this question. They said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, what are they asking? Well, they're asking, Jesus, when are you going to start to do real king things? When are you going to start acting like a real king and put us back in charge? When are you going to take over and put Israel back on top where we're supposed to be? But the fact is, is they misunderstood because Jesus had other plans. Now, Luke records his own version of the ascension uh, and the Great Commission. And this is what he says to them. He said to them, it's not for you to know the dates uh, or the times the Father has sent by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even the ends of the earth. See, just like he said... At the end of Matthew, he said that he was gathering his church together to be witnesses of Jesus. Let's continue the story. Jesus' disciples listened to him, and they went to Jerusalem to a room, call it the upper room, and they waited. And suddenly a wind came sweeping through the room, and... Things like, like tongues of fire started to rest on their heads and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages, which was pretty convenient because at the time there were Jews from all over the Roman Empire who spoke different languages. They were there celebrating the Feast of Pentecost all around the Roman Empire. And, and they could all understand the message that the disciples were preaching. You see, while Jesus was the blessing that God promised Abraham, it's actually the Holy Spirit that enables the church to be able to do what God promised to bring the good news of Jesus to all of the families of the world. But there was one who spoke a message that seemed to resonate or maybe that everyone heard. He was sort of the keynote speaker in that day. His name was Peter who was the one, again, who always seemed to speak up first, who spoke for the disciples. But he spoke up and he preached the first evangelistic sermon. And this is what he said. Well, he told the story of Israel. Now, he didn't go all the way back to Genesis. He didn't go all the way back to Abraham. He actually just went back to David. And what he said was that David prophesied that one day that there would be a king who was going to rise from the dead and he would establish his kingdom forever. And that everyone who was living in that moment was now witnesses to the fact that Jesus is that king. And he had risen from the dead. And then he brings it home with this application. How's this for, uh, for an altar call? So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and king. This Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and king. And it says that people were repenting. And the church grew by 3,000 people that very day. That's a logistical nightmare, isn't it? 3,000 people. Wow. 
Well, from there, the church grew. But it also started to experience persecution more and more. All of the disciples were martyred for their faith, except for John, who spent the last years of his life on the island of Patmos, exiled. But something happened that transformed this ordinary group of 12 working class men into fearless missionaries. And what you find is, is that even their deaths couldn't stop the church. And over the next 300 years, the Roman Empire tried, tried really hard to squash the church, forcing Christians to burn incense to the emperor, putting them before lions and gladiators, burning them on poles. But the church continued to grow. When people joined the church, they actually knew what they were getting into. They knew they were putting their lives in danger. Okay, but the power of the Holy Spirit overcame it all. Now, the mission wasn't something that was necessarily really well thought out. There was no organized and strategic mission program other than what Jesus gave them in Acts chapter 1, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay? In fact, because of the persecution happening, most of the churches met in secret, and yet the church grew, seemingly miraculously prevailing. The sociologist Rodney Stark estimates that in the first 300 years of its existence, the church grew to about 30 million people, which was a significant percentage of the Roman Empire, 50 to 60 percent probably by that point. And so by the time Constantine came to power, there were so many Christians that it, what he did was really kind of inevitable anyway. And he became a Christian, and the Roman Empire itself became Christian. That's a staggering amount of growth. And it did so not through conquering armies, but actually when armies came to conquer the various outskirts of the Roman Empire, instead they became Christians, and they joined the church. And any time the church did try to expand through military force, like the Crusades, the results were disastrous. But when the church lived like Jesus and relied on the power of the Holy Spirit, God moved and lives were changed. In the early years of the church in the Roman Empire, the greatest times of growth actually happened during the uh, pandemics, or actually the plagues, of 160, and then there was another one 100 years later, 260 A.D., the plagues were so severe, especially in the city, that even the best doctors, doctors like Galen, ran for the hills to save themselves. But the Christians risked their lives. They stayed in the city. They pulled dying people out of the gutters where their family had left them, thrown them, and, and they, they nursed them back to health. Historians tell us that they might literally have saved millions of lives in the Roman Empire. In fact, the only powers that have been able to make a dent in the church to this point have been apathy or corruption in the church because of the worldly powers that we have amassed. There have been many times in its history when it seems like the church was all but dead because of those things, but each time, God seems to send someone to revive the church. Fast forward many years, in the 1700s, when the church in England was, seemed to have been lost to alcohol and apathy, God raised up people like George Whitfield and John Wesley and, and Jonathan Edwards, and it sparked a great awakening among people that not only revived the church, but 
even saved England and, and led to the abolition of slavery there. And I, I know uh, many people that believe that in U.S. history, practically everyone during colonial times was a Christian. After all, the, the pilgrims came to the United States for religious freedom. But it seems like most people in the United States during that time actually practiced freedom from religion rather than freedom of religion since less than 20% of colonial Americans claimed any church affiliation at all. I know that's surprising. In fact, one author said that in 1776, people were more likely to be sexually active than active in the church. Most people that did attend church at that time attended part, uh, were, were part of a state-sponsored denomination that were notably dead. But again, God revived his church through the Methodist and Baptist circuit riders who sparked the Second Great Awakening, preaching about the need for repentance and faith, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, called people out of dead religion into the church that even the gates of hell could not prevail against. And over the next 50 years in America, the church grew like crazy. And abolitionist movements grew out of the Spirit-empowered church. And the civil rights movements of the 50s and 60s grew out of the black church. God has worked through his church to save souls, to transform lives, to free slaves, to free addicts, to empower women, to feed the hungry, to heal the sick, to educate the poor, to adopt the orphan, to bring relief in disasters, and to advocate for people unjustly prisoned, among uh, many other things. Now, there's no doubt that the church has flaws. The church has often gotten drunk on power and instigated violence and religious wars, the crusades, the inquisition, and other things that we could talk about. Okay, for every Christian who fought for abolition in America, there were more who opposed it. Some of the sins of the church are actually being exposed today. Financial corruption, sexual abuse that's been hidden and covered up, and and abuse of power by church leaders. And in fact, oftentimes when you look, we can look more like the world than we look like the church that God created us to be. And these are stains on the church, and we can't excuse them. We can't sweep them under the rug. We have to keep our eyes open for our own sins. We have to be willing to repent and to do better. But understand this, that God loves his church. The church is the bride of Christ. And he always raises up people from within the church to do what he wants to accomplish because it's Jesus who builds the church. And he promised that even the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. And so as we participate in the church, this is the vision that we have to have in mind. The church is not a building It's not a sociological experiment or optional club for individual believers. When you come to Jesus, you become a part of his kingdom and you become a part of his church. And as individual members of his church, then we take on the task of the church. And given the history, this is what it means. First, we have to remember that the very existence of the church is intended to bless the world. We are chosen... We are God's people, but we are not chosen just for salvation. We are chosen to advocate for people to be reconciled to God. We are chosen to be people who are witnesses 
to the salvation of Jesus. We are called to pray for the world. We're called to do this for all of the nations and families and people groups of the world, all of the individuals of the world, whether they are across the globe or across the street. Yes, the church is set apart and chosen by God, but we are called as a people to live for the benefit of the world. It's both a burden that we carry because there's a lot of work to be done, but also a joy because we get to work for the best boss in the world. Second, we are to carry this blessing through word and deed. Now, it's really easy for us to see a tension in this statement. Okay? There are some who say that the church should just preach the gospel. Okay? There are others who say that we should do good deeds in the world and just let those things speak for themselves. And so they'll neglect the preaching of the gospel. And the truth is, is that both of these tasks are essential for the church. It's not a distraction from the gospel to work for the flourishing of our neighborhoods or to feed the poor or advocate for the oppressed, at least not unless we allow it to become that. These works are part of the creation mandate. And also Jesus told us, let your light shine before humans that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so that's part of the task of the church, that we let our light shine for people, that they might see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. But at the same time, the Great Commission calls us to make disciples. Okay, and that means that we have to be willing and we have to be excited to share the good news with our neighbors and using our words. Okay, we're called to be witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the Lordship of Christ. And we, that cannot take a back seat Third, we need to remember that the power of the church is the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, Sometimes we can try to do the work of Jesus without Jesus. And that's why prayer is a central task of the church. And in this way, I would encourage you to think about how you pray. Now, I think it's okay for you to pray for your aunt's broken leg or your financial needs um, or anything like, you know, bring those things to God in prayer. Jesus says, perfectly fine. That's part of the Lord's prayer. Give us today our daily bread. But also don't forget to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do your prayer times include prayer for your church and for God's mission in the world? If it doesn't, then I would encourage you, adjust your prayer times to make sure that you're praying kingdom-sized prayers. And if God asks you to follow that prayer, to share the gospel, to do good deeds, to reach out, whatever he's calling you to do, don't be afraid to follow that prayer. But it has to start with prayer because the power of the church is actually the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we need to remember that the way of the church is the way of the cross. See, too often throughout history, much of the damage done by Christians has been because we've misunderstood our relationship with worldly power and influence. It's easy to get caught up in it. You see, our founder is one who rejected political and military power. He laid down the rights and privileges of being God, and he humbled himself, and he served others. He exchanged a sword for a towel, and rather than kill his enemies, he died for them. And he told his followers to do the same. We look in places like Matthew chapter 20, 
Jesus told his disciples, he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus finished washing his disciples' feet in John chapter 13, at the end of his ministry, when he's starting to prepare them for how they're going to participate in the world, he gets up and he looks at them and he says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The church, people who are called out of the world to bless the world, And we do that by bearing witness to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. By letting our light shine before people that they might see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. And Jesus Jesus promises that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that this is a group of people, and you can look around if you want, this is a group of people so powerful that not even the gates of hell itself will prevail against it. Lord, we thank you that you have called us out. And uh, we have to admit that oftentimes we take this thing lightly. Oftentimes we don't realize exactly what we're participating in when we come and we gather together and we worship together. We don't realize what we're participating in when we fellowship with other believers. We don't realize what we represent when we go out into the world and hang out at the coffee shop or work our jobs or go to the grocery store or hang out at the park when it's not raining. We don't realize what we're a part of. But God, I pray that as we go through this history, our history, starting way back at the beginning with Adam and Eve, through Abraham, through David, through Jesus, through Luke, through Paul and Peter and all of the apostles and uh, all of the early church fathers and John Wesley and all of those who came before us, that we are a part of something that is thousands of years old and that you have promised your Holy Spirit would work through. And so, Lord, I pray that each one of us would remember the power that you have given us to be witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that bless the world greatly and will bless for all of eternity. May we remember who we are and live into that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.